whole chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. And now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them, not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I'll remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and gave, kept them safe by that name you gave me. And none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. And Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. You may be seated. Today, as you may have guessed or noticed, and talk with you about prayer this morning. And I was reminded after uh, completing our series of sermons in Acts, and two weeks ago I had sort of summarized and said, this is what we take with us when we leave the book of Acts. 
and somebody uh, gently reminded me that I hadn't talked about prayer on that day. And prayer is not something that is very much taught in the book of Acts, but you see it all the time. Chapter 1. Jesus ascends into heaven. The disciples, the followers of Christ, go back to Jerusalem and they are praying together in one accord. In chapter 4, they're experiencing persecution and their first response is to go and pray. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned because the church in Antioch, in a time of worship and fasting and prayer, have heard the Holy Spirit say, set apart Paul and Barnabas and send them off to the work that I've committed them to. Well, what to say about prayer in a single Sunday morning? I mean, we know tons about prayer already. There's not much that I could say to you that you don't already know, if not by experience, at least in your minds. You could talk about the power of prayer. You could talk how prayer is needed for our own spiritual growth, that it's the air that we breathe in terms of our relationship with God. We could talk about the tension that arises between the discipline of prayer on one hand and the joy of prayer on the other hand. We could talk about prayer as a weapon, which I have taught on before. Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, and take the sword of the Spirit and pray. Prayer is a weapon. We could talk about the corporate nature of prayer. There's just a different dynamic when we pray together. Not to make less of our own personal prayers, but there's just something different. Almost seems to be more power when we pray together. We could talk about that. We could talk about the elements of prayer. Worship and thanksgiving and confession. And of course, the asking of God to give and to do certain things. We could approach prayer from, if you will, the negative side. Barriers to answered prayer. There are things that God says in his word, reasons that he gives for not answering our prayer. Harboring sin in our hearts, not praying in accordance with God's will, ignoring the poor, etc. We could talk about guilt. We all feel a certain level of guilt. The one one comment that I hear the most often in talking about prayer is this comment. I know I should pray, what's the word? More. There's a certain guilt that goes along with that. A guilt, by the way, that I don't think we need to have unless you're not praying at all. But I would take 10 minutes of meaningful prayer over an hour of daily prayer if the 10 minutes is more in the presence of God And the other hours are just saying my prayers. It's not about praying more. Could talk about the fact that prayer is not just asking God for stuff. We could talk about the fact that I've I've never understood this phrase, and maybe because I'm not particularly uh, contemplative, but the idea of walking through the day in a spirit of prayer. I've never quite gotten that. I think that prayer is is cognitive, intentional communication with God. And I suspect that if you don't know you're praying, you're probably not. It doesn't mean there's not longings in the heart that God knows and answers. It doesn't mean that we're not always aware of God's presence. But I think prayer is when we talk and listen and that we're aware of it. So all of these things we could talk about, and there's a long 
sermon series on prayer that could come out of that. And I've actually preached one before, but that was 10 years ago. Maybe it's time to do another. I don't know. But what I want to do today is share with you, first of all, a statement that was made over 100 years ago that I think captures in just a few sentences what is the basic reality about prayer. And then with that underlying what we're going to do, what I'm going to do today, I want to go to the chapter that I've just read, John chapter 17, and show us something about what Jesus prayed for. Because I believe that this particular prayer of Jesus is not just a model of prayer, but it's a summary of what it means to be the church. And there's a danger that we approach this prayer somewhat clinically, as a series of bullets that need to be a part of our strategic thinking, as in fact it already has been and is reflected in our mission statement already. Not a series of bullets, but more the heartbeat that keeps the church alive. The internal engine that drives who we are in everything that we do. And it almost doesn't need to be said, but if this is what Jesus prayed for, then it certainly has value for us. First, this quote. Somebody once asked George MacDonald, who is, was a pastor in the 19, late 19th century, in the United Kingdom, somebody asked him, you know, if, if God already knows what we need and he loves us, then why do we need to ask him at all? What is the meaning of prayer? We're not going to ask God for things that he doesn't already know. So but why bother praying? And this was George MacDonald's response. And if you write fast, you should take this down. He answered, what if God knows prayer to be the thing that we need first and most what if the main object in God's idea of prayer to be the supplying of our great our endless need the need of himself what if the good of all of our smaller and lower needs lies in this that they may help drive us to God communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other needs and prayer is the beginning of that communion. And I don't think that needs to be expanded. Speaks for itself. Now I want to go to John chapter 17 with you. This is what Jesus prays on the night before or the night of his arrest and the night before his crucifixion. He prays it after leaving the upper room with his disciples and before his arrest. He's on his way to Gethsemane. Maybe he's at the temple on his way out of the city. I don't know. But he's praying it on his way to the garden. And this prayer has been broken up, typically, into three sections, and I think rightfully so. And chances are that in your Bible, it's been given headings according to those three sections. That Jesus prays for himself, that he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all who will believe because of their message. And that includes us, by the way. It's not a long prayer. Just a few moments to read it and to say it. And I think this is actually the real Lord's Prayer. I think what we typically call the Lord's Prayer is really the disciples' prayer. Jesus has taught us how to pray. But this is the only prayer of Jesus that we have recorded in the Gospels that is more than like a sentence or two long. So I think this is the Lord's 
prayer. And in each of these sections, I don't know if you noticed or not, but in each section, Jesus asks for only one thing. And he gives a reason for asking that of his father. He asks for one thing, one thing only, and then he gives a reason why he's asking for it. And in order that with each request. So when Jesus prays for himself, he says, Father, please do that in order that this. When he prays for his disciples, he says, please bring this into reality so that this can happen. And he does that three times. And these three pleas of Jesus to his father and the three things that Jesus wants to see come about because of his prayers are all linked to each other. They form like a circle that comes back to where it starts. So let's go. If you've got your Bibles, it may be worth following along. And if you are a highlighter or an underliner, this is a great chapter in which to do that. So John chapter 17, and again verse 1. Jesus prays, Father, the time has come, and here's the ask, glorify your Son. And here's the reason, that your Son may glorify you. Father, glorify your Son in order that the Son may glorify you. Our single greatest concern, the single greatest concern of all who call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ, is the glory of God. And Jesus' greatest concern was the glory of his own Father. Our North American Baptist Conference, the denomination to which we belong, has as its mission statement that we exist to glorify God by making disciples at home and abroad. And Jesus, like us, I trust, doesn't pray with himself ultimately in mind, but with the glory of his Father in mind. And neither do we pray with ourselves primarily in mind, but with God in mind. And often I find that, even in my own prayer life, sort of flipped. I ask God for certain things because I need them. And that's okay. But I want to pray things more so that as God answers prayer in my life, he is glorified. That he does things in my life to shine the spotlight on himself. And that it doesn't stop here. That it's not about the gifts that God gives, but it's about the giver, God himself. Sometimes it is said that creation happened for the sake of God to have relationship with us. The reason that God created all things is for the sake of relationship with people. That's not true. God created things in order to... Create a form or a vehicle or a theater in which to demonstrate his own glory. And into that theater, he has placed us so that by his relationship with us, he might be glorified. That's why God created. And that is the end of all the things that God does. It's to come back to his own glory. The Lord's, the disciples' prayer starts, Our Father in heaven, 
holy is your name. And it ends with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And all the things that we ask for fit in between. But affirming and honoring the holiness of God and seeing his kingdom and honor and glory as well. That is why we pray. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 19, Daniel remembers the words of Jeremiah the prophet who said that the exile would last for 70 years. And so at the end of the 70 years, Daniel goes to God and prays. Lord, it's the time. We have sinned. We know that I have sinned. Have mercy on us. Fulfill your promise. And then he ends his prayer by saying, don't do it for our sake, but for the sake of your own name. Hear my prayer and act accordingly. I don't pray this for my nation, ultimately, but for the sake of your own reputation. Act. You said it. Now you've got to do it. Or your name gets tarnished. Lord, I'm concerned for your name. Therefore, act in accordance with your word. The glory of Jesus for the glory of God. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I don't know if it seems odd to you at all. And this may sound sacrilegious in light of what we've talked about for several years. But it's not all about Jesus. From the life of the church perspective, it is all about Jesus. Everything that we do and are and think and pray is about Jesus. But then, from Jesus, where does it go? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24. Then the end will come. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. Jesus himself, after receiving all glory and all things and all worship, all of our attention, everything that we are and have goes to Jesus and Jesus takes it and offers it to the Father for the sake of the Father and for the sake of his glory. Philippians chapter 2. Again, we think that it's all about Jesus. Let me read it for you. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. In the second section, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And again, he prays for one thing. It gives a reason for praying it. Verse 11, John 17. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them 
by the power of your name, the name you gave me, protect them so that they may be one as we are one. And then down to verse 15, he prays the very same thing. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them, verse 17. To sanctify is to set apart. In this case, Jesus is asking to set apart his people for the sake of their protection. In the world, but not of the world. Set us apart, protect, so that they may be one. And that's exactly what happened. God guarded the disciples in order that their unity would be preserved. Again, coming back to the book of Acts, praying in one accord. Description of the early church in the end of Acts chapter 2. That they met together all the time with glad and sincere hearts. The description at the end of chapter 4. They were one in heart and mind. If there was a need over here, somebody over here gave resources so that the need could be met. The unity of the disciples is the, the root out of which their mission and their life grew. Men and women, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, one in Christ. At one point after um, persecution and threats and violence against them did not work in killing this movement called the church, the conflict or the danger to the church became internal. Chapter 5 of Acts, you have Ananias and Sapphira. The reality of hypocrisy of people within the church lying to the church. In Acts chapter 6, you see this group of widows not complaining exactly, but lodging a formal complaint because they were not being looked after. And there was a danger that from within the church it would begin to splinter and they would separate and they would no longer be one united body. And that is why at the end of the book of Ephesians, by the way, in the famous Armor of God passage, the whole book of Ephesians, let me back up. The whole book of Ephesians is about the fact that God has acted in Christ to reconcile people to himself, first of all, but also to reconcile them to each other. That out of two peoples, Jew and Gentile, God would break the wall in between them in Christ and make them one body, one people, bring them together to be one temple. There would now be one people of God, a people centered in Jesus Christ. That's the book of Ephesians. And then Paul goes on to write about what that unity looks like. Speak to one another with love. Forgive each other. Work together. Exercise your gifts that the church might be one, fully mature in Christ. Husbands and wives, this is what your relationship looks like. Parents and children, this is what it looks like. Masters and slaves, this is what it looks like to be one in Christ. And then suddenly you get to Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God passage. And therefore we know that this armor of God passage has also to do with God's reconciling ourselves to him and to one another. So this put on the armor of God has to do with guarding the unity of the body of Christ. If, if God has brought people together, what is Satan going to seek to do? Drive them apart. 
And that needs to be protected against. It is not me that puts on the armor of God. It is the church that puts on the armor of God because unity needs to be protected. It needs to be guarded. You know what? Guarding unity, looking out for our own unity, is not natural for us. And so it needs not just to be fostered or cultivated within the church, but it needs to be fought for. It needs to be guarded. I've used this illustration, in a sense, many times in the past when my kids were all enthralled with the solar system. But at the center of the solar system is the sun. And the gravitational pull of the sun is what keeps all the planets and the asteroid belt and even stuff out beyond the farthest planet in orbit. It's the sun at the center that keeps them from just flying off into space. And in the church, it is the gravitational pull of God that keeps us bound up with one another. Keeps us together in orbit around the reality of God. It doesn't happen just on the disciples' own strength. Unity must be guarded, protected. We need to be set apart so that we can be kept from the action of the evil one. And Jesus says, protect them by your name. Protect them by the truth. Your word is truth. And our unity is not, doesn't just take place in the context of church and with one another. But it happens under the name, by the name of God. Happens in the context of who he himself is. And it happens by the truth of God. Your word is truth. Unity in the scriptures. Unity as we immerse ourselves in what God has said. What he has revealed about himself. Did you know that it is the word of God by the spirit of God that makes us one? We are a people of the word. And so our unity is protected by the truth of God in the scripture. Father, guard them so that they may be one. The third section. Jesus is praying now not just for his immediate disciples. But now he's praying into the centuries for all of those who will come to believe because of the message of the disciples. And we, of course, count ourselves among them. This is what he prays for us. John 17, verses 22 and 23, just coming right out of the prayer that our unity would be guarded. He prays. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Grant not just my disciples here, but all of my disciples for 2,000 years and who knows how far beyond. Grant them unity so that the world will know that you've sent me and that you've loved them. The unity of the church is the definitive proof of the reality of God in Christ. 
It proves to the world that God really did send Jesus into the world. It proves to the world that God really does love them. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus prayed exactly the same thing. He said to his disciples, love one another as I've loved you. If you love one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. I was talking the other night with my kids. We were reading from Matthew chapter 5 before they went to bed. And Jesus makes lots of references to the hypocrite in that chapter. And so I asked my kids, um, I said, you know what a hypocrite is? And they said, no. A hypocrite, I said, is somebody who says one thing and does another. Who says, I think I'm a very generous person, but never gives anything. Who says, I love my family and I'm a model dad, but beats up his kid. That's a hypocrite. Now, churches always have an inward component to their mission statement. You'll never find a church that doesn't, I think, and values love. And every church considers itself warm and friendly. But haven't we all at some point, somewhere, experienced or observed hostility, conflict, anger, separation, discord in the life of a church? That can be pretty hypocritical. But as we love one another, our character and integrity in the reality of Christ is highlighted. And churches can exist for decades with no unity. There was a a married couple. Um, She was 98. He was 101. They'd been married for 79 years. And then they stunned the people around them by getting a divorce. And everyone, all their friends, people who knew them said, why on earth are you getting a divorce now after being married for seven, 79 years? And they said, we wanted to wait till the kids were dead. <laughs> you can be together for a very long time and not have unity and not to know love. And that is as true for churches as it is for anyone else. But there's a problem, because the human default position is to look out for myself and not to look out for somebody else. I think that all sin, and certainly all broken relationships, corporate or individual, all sin can be rooted under one of three categories, me first, I want, and poor me. All sin. Me first, I want, and poor me. Looking out for our own interests is the human default position. And in the Old Testament, the law of the Old Testament called God's people to love their neighbors as themselves. I love me. I look out for me. I need to love my neighbor as myself. But have you ever noticed that in the New Testament, Jesus raises the stakes a little more? That under the law, it looks like this, but under grace, it looks like something different. Think of others more highly than yourselves. That's the reality of being in Christ. And where I think 
more highly of you than myself, and where each one of you considers the interests of other people above your own interests, the natural byproduct of that will be unity, and it'll be a joyful unity. The kind of unity that we all are so glad to be a part of. I've heard people talk sometimes in terms of church planning and church ministry that each church needs to find their niche and minister there. So we are a primarily fine arts driven church. We do drama, media, all this stuff. We are a, we're seeking the college age to be a church, build a church around that. We're, we're postmodern church. And I've always, that's always somehow rubbed me as wrong. I understand the need to minister and to seek people, certain groups of people. But at the end of the day, you don't want a church of just college-age kids. You don't just want a biker church, and they exist. The New Testament doesn't know anything about that. The New Testament knows a church that's made up of Jews and Greeks, and of men and women, and rich and poor, and people from all tribes and nations and languages and people. And I think that if you have a congregation where somebody, for whatever reason, doesn't fit, you don't quite have the church yet. If women are undervalued, if single people feel like they're on the periphery of the culture, if people from other ethnic groups can't belong, we're less than what the church should be. All generations, all classes, all races. That's what made the church so unique in the first place. See how they love one another, it was said of the church. Father, make them one, so that the world will know that you have sent me. Our mission flows out of the reality of our love for one another and our unity. And that's where Jesus' prayer comes full circle. Glorify your sons that your son may glorify you. Protect them for the sake of their unity. Let them be united so that the world will know. And as the more and more of the world comes to know, Father, you are glorified. That's the circle of prayer. And the life of the church, not just the prayer life of the church, but the life of the church is fundamentally concerned with the glory of God and the unity of the people and the mission of the church that more and more would know that Jesus Christ was sent from God and that God loves them and that more and more people end up by their lives giving glory to God. I think that's what underlies prayer and everything else you could say about prayer arises from there. But also the whole life of the church arises from there. The priorities of Jesus as he prayed on the last night of his life before he gave himself for the world was the glory of God and the unity of his people and the salvation of those who are as yet outside the church but will be drawn in. And how can our Priorities be anything less than that. Bottom line, they can't. Let me pray for us.
Our Father in heaven, whose name is holy, and to whom belongs all honor and the kingdom and glory forever. To you we come this morning and just say, Lord, glorify Jesus in and through us so that he may glorify you. We ask for your protection so that our unity might be guarded. Because we can't just foster it over lunches. We need transformation of our hearts to seek the interests of others. Guard us so that we might be one. And Lord, make us one so that the world will know. The world will have their attention turned not just to Jesus, but to the character and mission and divinity of Jesus. And again, that you may receive glory. This we pray and this we ask you to work out in our life as a church. From this day forward and increasingly. We desire your glory. We desire to be one in order that you may be glorified. And we pray it through the name of Jesus who has also now prayed for us. Amen.